I think many of us are intimidated by prayer because we, uh, we don't know how to pray. I mean, we, it's not a natural thing for us to, to pray. And so the way we overcome that is the way we learn about prayer is by praying. That's one way, by praying with other people. Uh, so if you're intimidated and you're like, I don't know how to pray, well, go pray with people. They'll, they'll help you. And also by, by reading the Bible and receiving the instruction on prayer. Uh, and so today we're going to look at, uh, at a passage from Luke 11, where Jesus himself teaches us how to pray. And so I hope that this will be helpful to many of us. It's in many ways a very simple passage to understand, and yet it has profound meaning. So let me read Luke 11, verses 1 through 13, and you can follow in your Bibles or a Bible in front of you in the pew, and if you don't have a Bible, grab one, take it home, please keep it. Uh, It's good for you to have a Bible at home. Luke 11, verse 1. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray... Say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give you anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, he will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is God's word. So this passage begins with the disciples asking Jesus to teach them to pray. And so the first question is, did they not know how to pray? I mean, why are they asking him to to teach them? Uh, Since most of them undoubtedly came from religious homes, they went to synagogue and temple, I'm sure they were around prayer all the time, and yet they're asking Jesus to teach them how to pray. And the reason is, is because they're praying for a specific, they're asking for a specific way to pray. They're asking for Jesus to teach them to pray as his disciples. That's why they're saying, just as John asked, just as John taught his disciples, you teach us as your disciples how to pray. So in other words, the disciples are asking for a distinctly Christian way to pray, a distinctly disciple of Jesus way to pray. Now, it's common to see prayer as the same thing in any religion. You know, it's like, you know, people talk about people of faith as sort of this moniker for religious people. Are you a person of faith? Well, what faith, right? Which faith? 
we all kind of get lumped in together as religious people, but we're very, very different. There's a number of faiths that contradict each other. Uh, the reason religious people don't typically get along is because we have very different ideas of, of who God is and what our lives are supposed to be. And just as faith it becomes this common thing that seems to be common to everybody, so, so is prayer. We talk about prayer as if everybody understands what prayer is. Everybody has experience in prayer. And no matter what religious tradition you are from, you all pray the same way. But that's not true. That is not true. You, you, you only have to pray, uh, see how other people pray to realize how different our approaches to prayer are. Pagans do not pray the same way as Buddhists pray. I mean, it's very different. So if you know any Buddhists, if you know any pagans, their prayers are very, very different. They're, in fact, they're almost opposite of how they are approaching the divine. You can, you can hardly find any similarities between the two. If you go to the local mosque, as some of us have gone on several occasions and witnessed their prayer services, you realize right away this isn't like Chatham. This isn't like a Christian church. It's very different. Now, they're praying. They're praying to God, to a God, to someone outside of this kind of physical reality, and yet their praying is very different. So we have to ask, what is the Christian way to pray? Not just what is prayer, but what is the Christian way, the, the way that's taught by Jesus himself to pray? What does Jesus teach us about prayer? And so in this passage, Jesus puts prayer in the context of three relationships. And I think that's the key to understanding Christian prayer, which is true prayer. It's in the context of three relationships. To pray in a distinctly Christian way, we must pray as Jesus' followers, as his followers. So that's the first relationship, that's to Jesus. Secondly, we must pray as God's children. That's the second relationship between us and the Father. And thirdly, we are to pray as those who have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the third relationship. You see all three of them in this short passage where Jesus teaches on prayer. We pray as his disciples, we pray as God's children, we pray as those who have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that the Christian understanding and practice of prayer is Trinitarian. Since prayer is talking to God, and God is one being in three persons. That's who God is. God is a trinity. There are three persons in one being, one God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if that's true of him, then our prayers, of course, they must reflect that. For us to understand how to relate to God, how to pray, we must understand God. We must relate to him based on his revelation of himself. So let's consider prayer as those who are redeemed by the Son, the first relationship, adopted by the Father, the second relationship, and filled with the Spirit, the third relationship. Like the disciples in our passage, uh, we should learn to pray from Jesus himself. Jesus is the only uniquely reliable teacher on prayer. Now, there's lots of teachers on prayer, lots of teaching. Some of them are very helpful. But Jesus is the only one that's uniquely reliable in his teaching on prayer. Well, why? Well, because he is both God and man. I mean, who's going to teach us about how, to, how, to, how God relates to people and how people relate to God better than the person who is both God and man? 
And so when Jesus talks about prayer, we better listen. We better understand how he teaches us to pray. Now look at verse 1. You can easily overlook that as you get into the meat of the teaching here. But it begins with verse 1. Jesus was praying. Jesus was praying in a certain place. I mean, this is a startling verse. And I know that most of us are used to Scripture, and these verses just are common to us. But it is a startling thing to know that Jesus is praying in a certain place. God became human, and God is engaging in the human-divine relationship in a specific place at a specific time. I mean, that's, to many, that's a crazy idea. God is actually human, and as a human being, He is praying to God in a certain place at a certain time. Jesus is showing us not only who God is, but also who we are supposed to be. Because he himself is practicing true humanity in the presence of God. He's showing us a human being at peace with God, praying in the right way. And so the disciples say, well, teach us to do that. Teach us to pray like we're supposed to pray, in the true way, in the real way that reflects who God is, that reflects our true relationship with him through you. Now, in verses 5 through 8, Jesus tells uh, a very interesting story. And, and like many passages or many sayings of Jesus, even if you are familiar with them, they are surprising. <laughs> I mean, you don't expect this story here. If you're an honest reader of Scripture, that, that is a kind of a surprising and maybe even a confusing story about prayer. But this is Jesus' illustration of how prayer works. He tells the story of a man waking up his friend, his neighbor, at midnight and asking for some bread to share with another friend who showed up unexpectedly at his door. And Jesus says that this man's impudence will get him what he needs. Now, he's teaching on prayer. And he seems to be saying that our insistence, our impudence, our persistence, our almost like impropriety, right? Insensitivity, just as it is in this story, will make our prayers effective. Now, the immediate application of that story is be persistent, right? Because he's going to say, knock and ask, and it'll be given to you. That's the immediate application. But there's an assumption here that is, I think is crucial. The assumption of this story is that the man can go to his neighbor and that his neighbor has bread he can share. That's the assumption. The assumption is that this kind of impudence can happen, that there's a possibility of this person going to this other person and asking for bread. In the incarnation of Christ, God became our neighbor. He became the kind of neighbor that we can bother at midnight when we need something. This is distinctly Christian. That in Christ, because God became human in Christ, God moved in next door, as it were. God came so close to us in Jesus that we can be insensitive in our prayers, that we can bother Him. I mean, this is where Jesus starts. 
And as his disciples, this is how we understand God. Because God is here in Jesus. God made himself available and accessible to us through the incarnation of Christ. This is uniquely Christian. God became human so God can be accessible to human beings. Now let me dwell on impudence a little bit. This is an interesting word, and and I think some translations try to make it sound better, right? I think some would translate it as persistence. It's not persistence. It actually means what it sounds like. It's, it's that sort of audacity, it's sort of shamelessness. It's, it's sort of this, you know, we don't care about rules. You know, I don't care that you're asleep and your children are asleep and there's school tomorrow. I'm still coming to your house and I'm going to be there as long as it takes so you can give me what I need. It's, it's that kind of boldness without regard to time, place, or person. And Jesus says that if you are my follower, Jesus says, if you are connected to God through me, you can be shameless, improper, and annoying in prayer. I think that's what he's saying. That's the story he gives us, right? And he says this is how prayer works. And the way, the reason prayer works like that is because God made himself accessible and vulnerable in Jesus. So whenever you hesitate to ask something of God, whenever you wonder if you should keep praying, maybe you've been praying for many days, weeks, months, years about something, and you're wondering if you should give up, you're wondering if God is tired of your prayers, you're wondering if you should still, still bother God with this request, remember this story. Remember that Jesus came in part so you can bother God at midnight. Whatever else such impudent prayers may be, they are certainly expressions of faith that God can help us, that God is available to us, that He has what we need, that we can ask Him and there's a real chance He can actually give it to us, that He is willing to respond to us, no matter how late or inconvenient it is. Now look at the sample prayer that Jesus gives us and to his disciples, verses 2 through 4. This is the prayer that Josh uh, helped us pray through, and 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 if that sounded weird to you, like some parts of it were missing, right? Especially if you grew up in a tradition where you've memorized the Lord's Prayer. You've memorized Matthew's version of that, just so you know. So it's Matthew 6, gives us the full version of the Lord's Prayer. This is probably the one that you know, and maybe you pray um, like me. We regularly pray that prayer in our family. So this is maybe a little bit of a shorter summary, but it has all the important bits to it. Jesus gives us all the important pieces of how Christian prayer works technically. Kind of, you have to have confession. You, have to, you need to ask for, for provision. You need to honor His name. You need to pray about temptation. Those are all the pieces of a Christian prayer, and we need to know them. We need to practice them. And I can't focus too much on that because of time, but we, we have preached on the Lord's Prayer before. You can get the sermon series from several years ago where we go through every petition and we look at every part of it and try to learn from that. 
What I want to do this morning, very briefly, is just show you how through Jesus, being a disciple of Jesus, how you should see God. Because this prayer tells us what God is like. He is a personal God, first of all. When you pray, you're talking to a person. Jesus tells us to address Him as Father. This is very personal, relational. And I'll talk more about it in a few minutes. But at the very least, God is personally engaged with those who come to Him through Christ. Now, secondly, He's a king. Our God is a king. We operate in His world. And we must seek His interests. Jesus tells us to pray for God's name to be holy, to be honored, to be respected, to be set apart as something special. We are told to pray for His rule to be extended, for His kingdom to come, for Him to, to be in control and authority. But here's the amazing, amazing thing, that, and that's something all Christians must at some point learn, is that God's glory is not at odds with our well-being. Even as we, let me say this again, God's glory is not at odds with our well-being. Actually, when you pursue God's glory, when you pray for His name to be honored, when you pray for His kingdom to come, you're actually praying the very best things for you. Even as we pray for God's name to be hallowed and for His kingdom to come, we also expect that our daily needs will be met and that we will be protected from our enemies. Because to seek God's glory is to seek our greatest good. He is a king whose glory actually is the best thing for the kingdom. So as you pray for God to be lifted up, you also know that this kind of king, the kind of king he is, as he gets glory, he also provides, he also protects, he also cares for you. There's no contradiction in that. The best thing for the world is for God to be God. And for us to seek that is to seek the best thing for us and others around Him. Thirdly, He is a forgiving judge. Now, to see God as a judge is part of the universal religious instinct. I think we all deal with guilt. Where does that guilt come from? Well, sometimes from our parents, right? But most likely it comes from this universal sense of not fitting in, not belonging, not measuring up. Well, that's from God. We're all sinners. And so this sense of being judged, sense of being under condemnation is universal. But to have confidence in His forgiveness is distinctly Christian. To know that this judge not only judges but forgives. To know that this judge who has the right to annihilate us doesn't and chooses to love us and chooses to accept us, chooses to welcome us into His family, that is distinctly Christian. Only in Christ we can pray for God's forgiveness and be assured that we are forgiven. Now, this relationship with God as a loving parent, as a protector and provider, as a forgiving judge, as a king, is ours if we have been redeemed by Jesus. Jesus starts with this relationship with Him, and through that relationship with Him, we actually see God as He is. And we can actually pray to Him as we should. Apart from Jesus, apart from what He has done, we are not part of God's family. We don't start out 
being part of God's family. We are rebels to his rule. We are not part of his kingdom without Jesus. In fact, we are under his wrath, under the wrath of the judge for our very real sins. But because Jesus came, because he lived a perfect life on our behalf, Jesus did everything right. Who else has done that? Nobody. But Jesus did everything right on our behalf, in our place. Because Jesus suffered and died instead of us, in our place. Because he rose again to acquire a new life for us that he wants to share with us. Only because of those things, things that he did, we can be adopted and forgiven, accepted and loved, protected and cared for by the greatest person in existence. Now, this relationship with God is a gift. It's what the Bible calls grace. It's free to us. We just accept it. But it costs Jesus his very life. Have you accepted this gift? Have you been redeemed by Jesus? Are you his disciple? If you are not his disciple, if you haven't been changed by that relationship with Jesus, everything else I'm going to say about prayer, it's going to be at best information. Maybe it'll be helpful to you, but you won't experience it unless you know Jesus, unless you've accepted what he's done for you. So that's the first relationship with Jesus. The second one is the relationship with the Father. To pray in a distinctly Christian way is to approach God as his children. Now, I've already said that Jesus wants us to address God as Father, and it is incredibly important to see that this is how Jesus' understanding of prayer is framed. This is the first word in the prayer. We, we're supposed to start with the fatherhood of God. And that led J.A. Packer, the great theologian, to conclude that Father is the Christian name for God. Father is the Christian name for God. Now look at verses 11 through 13. Here Jesus uses an analogy. A child asks his father for a fish. What father would trick him and give him a snake, right? It's hard to imagine. I'm sure maybe that's happened, but hard to imagine any father in response to a their child, his child asking for a fish will give him a snake. What father would give a scorpion instead of an egg? So a child comes to you, asks for something, and you trick them, and you're, with great cruelty and meanness, you harm them. Now, Jesus' point is simple. Why would God, the perfect parent, the perfect father, withhold anything good from us? Because even bad parents, even bad parents do good things for their children. What about the best parent? What about the best father? Would he ever do anything cruel, anything mean, anything not perfect, anything delayed for no reason? Of course not. And that is why we should pray, we should pray persistently, we should pray Frequently, we should pray with impudence because this is how children are with their parents. Listen to Paul Miller in his great book on prayer. He says, To learn to pray is to enter the world of a child. 
where all things are possible, little children can't imagine that their parents won't eventually say yes. They know if they keep pestering their parents, they'll eventually give in. Childlike faith drives this persistence. <laughs> That's prayer. We're children going to our Father completely convinced that, that there's nothing impossible for Him and that He will eventually do what we ask Him to do. That's why we persist in prayer. And I think that's completely biblical. In fact, I think most of our, if not all of our problems with prayer, our questions, our struggles with prayer, are addressed by, by us placing that problem in the child-parent relationship. So if we sort of rephrase that in terms of children and parents, I think a lot of those questions are actually immediately answered. Let me give you a couple examples. Why doesn't God answer me? Is that a question you've struggled with? I have, right? Why doesn't God answer? I ask Him, but He doesn't answer me. He doesn't give me what I ask Him for. I keep praying and praying, and He's just not responding. Now put it in terms of a child-parent relationship. Does a good parent always give everything their child demands? There's an obvious answer, right? No, of course not. Part of what makes you a good parent is wisdom, knowing what to give to your child and when. And so if you, if you frame this problem, why doesn't God answer prayer, in terms of the child-parent relationship, the answer is obvious. A good parent, which of course God is the best parent, only gives what is good. He only gives what is good. So when you think God doesn't care or He's not paying attention or He doesn't love you, consider that as a parent, He cares so much that He won't give you what He knows is not good for you. And so here's this great philosophical question, why doesn't God answer prayer as a result? I think completely, once you place it, once you put it in the, in the parent-child relationship, when you start thinking about prayer from the perspective of a little child and a perfect parent, and you start putting that together, all of a sudden, it makes a lot more sense. Here's another example. Why does God rarely answer our prayers right away? In my experience, it's very rare for me to pray once and receive that answer right away. It happens sometimes, but it's very rare. Usually, you pray over and over and over again. There are multiple times you pray multiple days, multiple weeks, and then the Lord will give you what you've asked for. And you say, why didn't you do it right away? Is that something you've struggled with? Why does so much teaching on prayer in the Bible is about persistence, is about patience, is about perseverance? Why is that? Well, it's a theological question. It's a question about God's providence and timing, right? No, it isn't. <laughs> it's actually a question about parents and children. And when you put it in the context of parents and children, all of a sudden the answer to that question is obvious. Parents are not just after a transactional relationship with their children. Parents don't want just, you tell me what you want, I'll get it to you, we don't have to talk. I mean, well, sometimes. 
But mostly, what we want as parents, we want a relationship. We want an ever-deepening, ever-growing relationship with our children. So what we actually want is numerous conversations, repeated conversations. We want to talk about something again and again so we can develop a relationship. Because when we do talk about maybe the same thing over and over again, that's an opportunity to examine motives. It's an opportunity to connect something else to that request and give the child a much fuller perspective on the world. It's an opportunity for moral formation. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons why we don't respond quickly, why we linger in those conversations and we require multiple conversations, why parents typically say, let's talk about it later, right? Now, if that's true of our human relationship with our children, and God is a perfect parent, it makes perfect sense why He wants us to keep talking to Him, why there's patience that's involved in prayer, why he, He's not quick to answer sometimes because He wants us to linger in His presence. He wants us to keep talking to Him. He wants us to look at ourselves. He wants us to make a connection to something we don't even realize is there. So do you pray like a child talking to her father. Jesus prayed as a son to his father, so all who are in Christ can pray to God as children to their heavenly father. Now, of course, I must always say that I think it's always appropriate to bring this up in this context, that our relationships with our own fathers or lack of relationship with our own fathers influence how we pray. Of course it does. One of the practices I, I have incorporated into my prayer life a few years ago, because uh, during Lent we, uh, we had a series of prayer meetings and we've looked at some of these incredible promises that Jesus makes about prayer, and we try to work through it. And, and to me, one of the kind of bigger insights was that how much of that is family language and, and relating to children to parents. And so it's at that time that I realized that for me to really deal with my own father wounds from my own father and my relationship with God, I have to address God as I have addressed my dad. So I actually started using the same name that I've used for my own dad, and I've always called him Papa. My children call me Papa. And once I started saying Papa to God, oh my goodness, emotional floodgates, right? It is, I mean, it's incredible what happens in your heart once you actually make that connection obvious. Now, not everybody had a, a selfish and distant dad like I do, but everybody brings that baggage with them. Everybody brings their, their parents into their prayer life. And so I will, I mean, I'll, I'll be careful, okay, but I will carefully and cautiously commend this practice to you. Try calling God the same way you call your dad. And let the Holy Spirit help you work through the trauma, okay? Let the Holy Spirit counsel you and heal you because that's the relationship that really matters in prayer. If your relationship with your dad is unexplored, if, there's, if there are wounds there and pain there that you don't want to touch, which most of us don't, that's absolutely going to affect how you see God and how you relate to him in prayer. So open it up, is my advice. Open it up and let the Holy Spirit help you work through that. 
Now, this is our relationship with God as Father. That's the second part. And the third one is our relationship with the Holy Spirit. We pray as people redeemed by the Son, adopted by the Father, and then filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, look at verse 13, and I hope, I hope you noticed kind of the inconsistency, the surprise here. Jesus says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give? And this is where you have to stop, and you have to say, okay, what do I expect Jesus should say here? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give every good gift to you, maybe, what you would expect, or give you what you ask, maybe? But instead, Jesus says, give you the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. So Jesus says, bad parents give good gifts to their children. God is a great parent, and He gives the Holy Spirit to His children. That's what He's saying. He's not actually saying what you'd expect Him to say. What Jesus says is that God, being a good parent, gives us the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is the greatest gift He can give you. Whether God answers your request, specific prayer requests, quickly or at all, He loves you with such commitment and intensity that He gives Himself to you. God is always there for you through His Spirit, who is God in the same way that the Father and the Son are God. And a Christian doesn't ever need to question God's love precisely because we have been given the Holy Spirit. Precisely because we have God. We have Him. He's with us. He's been given to us. This is what Jesus is saying. Our God is such a good Father. Such a good Father. No no matter how He answers a particular prayer, He always gives himself to you. He's always there for you. He doesn't let you question his love because he shows up for you. The Holy Spirit is called the spirit of adoption. The Holy Spirit enables us to experience God by pouring his love into our hearts, Romans 5 says. One of the Holy Spirit's great delights is to take the love of God and not just teach us about it, which he also does, but make us feel it. And so he takes this love, right, and he actually, like, puts it in us. He, he allows us to experience it. He allows us to, to feel it and to know through our experience that it's real. The Spirit convinces us that God is a Father who delights to give his children good gifts. He convinces us of that. And it is the Spirit who allows us to cry, Abba, Father, as we pray. It's the Spirit who does all this. Let me give you one illustration. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin uses this analogy about the work of the Spirit. He says a father and his small child are walking down a road, holding hands, now, the child knows that the father loves him. He is, he is convinced of the father's 
love for him. He's happy about it. But then something happens. Suddenly, the father, moved by some emotion or impulse, scoops the child up, takes the child, picks him up, hugs him, kisses him in a show of love, and then puts him down, grabs his hand, and they keep walking down the road. Now, is their love any greater now? Did the child not know before that the father loves him? Is, is, has their relationship changed now because of this? And the answer is no. Everything is the same. But the experience of that relationship is now so much more intense because of that event. And Goodwin says that this outpouring of love is what the Spirit does for Christians. It is the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are truly God's children and that He is a good Father who loves us. The Spirit does that for us. He tells us in very experiential terms that what Jesus did worked and that we have God for a Father and that He really loves us and that He will never withhold anything good from His children. And in that moment, you know it. Not just in your head. Not just because you were taught well and you've read the Bible and you know it's true. But because you know it in your heart. It's been made real to you by God Himself. And now you know that God loves you. To pray in a distinctly Christian way is to rely on the influence of the Holy Spirit. It is to trust Him this God in us, this God with us, is to trust Him that our prayers are heard, that our Father loves us, and that He always does what is best for His children. So what is a distinctly Christian way to pray? It's a Trinitarian way. It's unique to Christianity. It's to, to pray on the basis of redemption in Christ. It's to pray as children pray to the Father. And it's prayed empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is how C.S. Lewis describes it. An ordinary, simple Christian kneels down to say his prayers. He's trying to get in touch with God. But if he is a Christian, he knows that what is prompting him to pray is also God. God, so to speak, inside of him. But he also knows that all his real knowledge of God comes through Christ, the man who was God. That Christ is standing beside him, helping him to pray, praying for him. You see what is happening. God is the thing to which he is praying, the goal he's trying to reach. God is also the thing inside of him which is pushing him on, the motive power. God is also the road or bridge along which he is being pushed to that goal. So that the whole threefold life of the three personal being is actually going on in that ordinary little bedroom where an ordinary man is saying his prayers. That's, that is a distinctly Christian way to pray. This is how the disciples of Christ pray because we have all of God all the time engaged with us. And no matter how silly your prayer is, how superficial it may be, how weak it is, you're praying to God even as God is helping you to pray, and even as God is ensuring that all your prayers matter.
And because God is with us, and because God is in us, and because God is for us, because we have been redeemed by the Son, because we've been adopted by the Father, because we have been filled with the Spirit, we can ask and seek and knock and pray with impudence, prayer, annoying prayers to God and trust the love of God even as we wrestle with Him in prayer. This is what Jesus teaches about prayer. Now the question is, is that how you pray? Do you pray? And is that how you pray?